The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Because that's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. And I want to extend a formal happy resurrection to all of you. Thank you so much for being with us today. We've got our regulars. We've got members. We actually have some members who are out with their families traveling who can't be with us today. We have uh, visitors here that have already been privileged to meet. Some of you are family members of those among us, so thank you so much for being here. And also some familiar faces, whether it's college or uh, other members who are visiting with us today. So just an absolute delight uh, to see you all, and we do look forward to maybe if you're able to stay after the service for some fellowship time in the fellowship meal, uh, we would love to catch up and have fellowship there. Well, it is Resurrection Sunday, known over the rest of the world as Easter Sunday. And you don't have to feel bad as a Christian if you say Happy Easter, even though we know that the word Easter comes from uh, the pagan goddess Asterisk or whatever her name was. So you're not a devil worshiper if it slips out and you say Happy Easter. We will forgive you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But anyway, indeed, Happy Resurrection to you. Just a quick survey out of curiosity as I was thinking this morning, if you don't mind, I'm not going to embarrass you, but raise your hand if you didn't grow up going to church on Easter Sunday, just real quick. Just want to see how many. Okay, so go ahead and put your So that's like 25% of what I just surveyed, 25% of the folk. You don't have to feel guilty or bad about that. I grew up going to church every Easter for at least the first 15, 16 years in a row, and I wasn't even a Christian. So there's nothing inherently spiritual about going to church on Easter Sunday. So maybe those of you who didn't grow up going to church on Easter Sunday, which was just a priority and regular and very special for many of us, you didn't experience that growing up. That's okay. But now if you're a believer, it's just a glorious day to look forward to. And no doubt probably becomes one of the more precious days of the year for you in terms of its historical significance, but also eternal significance. So we just have a wonderful privilege of really celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And those of you who didn't grow up going to church and celebrating it on Easter, and some of us who grew up at other persuasions, like uh, in a Catholic, I grew up in a Catholic church. And even though I went to Easter Sunday mass until I was 19 years old, actually, never did I hear in the church service or the mass service, uh, the leaders say, he is risen. And then the congregation will respond back, he is risen indeed. I think I heard, that's like a Protestant thing or a Baptist thing. I haven't figured it out yet, but I thought it was cool. I was like, I like that. And so I was blessed by that after I became a Christian, actually long after I became a Christian. And uh, so it's a wonderful tradition. It's just a great reminder, an interactive reminder of this blessed truth we're going to look at today in the Bible together in Matthew 28. So that's where we'll be going. If you want to follow along in your Bible as we look to God's Word, as we're preparing for that, just a couple of other notes. Children, we do not have children's church today, correct? Okay, so the the kids, you're going to be with us today. Okay, if you are in fifth grade or younger, raise your hand real quick. Okay, put your hands down. Okay, I promise to you, young folk, that I'll try not to bore you and put you to sleep, okay? And if you have a Bible and you want to follow along and actually take notes, if you can, you are welcome to bring those up to me, put your name on that little piece of paper, and I'll look through the notes. I I promise I will get back to you with that with something special. But uh, you're not too young to follow along. It's an easy story to understand. It's a story, not heavy theology. It's true history, and it's the greatest history of all. So we're delighted to have the kids here with us. We do have a nursery if you want to. Take advantage of that you need to. You're welcome to do that. And also a mother's listening room right in the back of the church. All right, let's go to Matthew 28, where it all began. The New Testament has what are called four Gospels. Gospels are just the names of the books. Gospel means good news. And early on in history, these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were just called the Gospels for short because they're books about good news. They're about Jesus Christ beginning pretty much with his birth and then the three and a half years of his ministry, culminating in his death and his resurrection and then his ascension. So they all have the good news of Jesus Christ. Those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are complementary. Not one of them is identical to the other. 
And when you read them in sync all together, it provides just this full, beautiful harmony. Like the, the gospel story in stereo. We don't have time to look at the resurrection story of John, Mark, and Luke. But we'll look at Matthew's account. And it is full. It is rich. You will be blessed. And every time, it doesn't matter how many times you read it. If you are a Christian, you're a believer, you're paying attention, you have the Spirit of God living in you, you will be blessed by some new truth or reminded of a blessed truth you've known your whole life that can be applied in a new way. So that our hearts are full and rich by the time we are done as we are hopefully through God's Word and His Holy Spirit drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and the meaning of the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection. So let's go ahead and look at this wonderful account, Matthew 28. Matthew was a disciple. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he was a terrible sinner at one time and money-hungry, traitor, ripping people off as a tax collector. And then he got saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and was transformed. He became a new man. And then God so graciously allowed Matthew to be one of the first New Testament writers of any book. So Matthew is one of the earliest books that was written in the New Testament. Tradition says, and for good reason, that Matthew was the first gospel written. Matthew was an eyewitness. He knew Jesus personally. He was a friend of Jesus. So much of what he records, he actually saw firsthand. So he's a reliable source. Matthew, probably writing in the 50s AD. Matthew did not copy his account from Mark. Mark was not an apostle. Mark didn't walk and talk with Jesus for three years. So Matthew's account is special. He's also writing to the Jews, so he has a particular emphasis in all 28 chapters of his book. And he's really emphasizing many things. But one in particular is he wants people to be clear about who Jesus is, particularly to the Jewish audience that he's writing to. And in the 50s, there was some resistance and persecution in Jerusalem from unbelieving Jews at a very high level, very hostile. For those who did not believe, and basically Matthew's thesis is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And in Matthew 28, guided by the Holy Spirit, Matthew lays out an ironclad case showing from so many different perspectives that Jesus is indeed unique, special, and the promised Messiah, the king of the Jews, but also the king of all kings. And so we're going to see that. The title of the sermon I put there is Jesus Conquered Death, exclamation point, because that's the point in this whole chapter. Jesus came back from the dead just as he said he would. It's not mythical. It's not just a story. It's real history. Jesus conquered death by virtue of his resurrection, fulfilling all of his promises to do so, and all the promises in the Old Testament as well. And so as we go through, we see what Jesus does. We see what he says and also how people act towards him and react towards him. And through it, there's a testimony that is very clear, multifaceted of who Jesus is. Yes, he is the king. He's the king of kings and much more. So we've got five points there that I just want to pull away from the narrative of clearly reminding us of who Jesus is. And you can follow along in your bulletin if you want to look at the outline and find that helpful. This week, if you're paying attention at all, there's always some big news story, you know, that hits the news. This week, no doubt, one of the biggest one was that the Pope... The Vicar of Christ, he is called, that's his formal title, the Vicar of Christ. Vicar is short for vicarious, in the place of, the vicarious one. The Pope supposedly is in the place of Christ here on earth. That's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. So really when he speaks on religious and spiritual things, ex cathedra from the seat of authority, the Pope is Christ on earth to the people. That's why he's so highly revered by nearly one billion Catholics around the world. They bow the knee to him, they genuflect, they kiss his hand, they pray to him, they ask for blessings from him. When he speaks ex cathedra from the seat of authority, he speaks binding, infallible spiritual truth. Supposedly, that's what the Pope, his role is, is vicar of Christ. And supposedly when he speaks ex cathedra, he speaks infallible, binding, universal, quote, unchanging truth. And so this week, the Pope that's alive today Big headlines. Pope declares there is no hell. I don't know. Did you see that? I don't know. Were you relieved? Um, a lot of people were really relieved by that. 
I'm not Catholic, but I was saddened when I heard that and was like, well, you can't just believe the headlines. So read the story, checked the sources. Sure enough, it sounds like he had an interview and a conversation with a friend of his and supposedly declared and, and in fact said to his atheist friend that was interviewing him that there is no hell. There is no hell. And then he explained a little bit what he meant by that. There is no literal hell. In other words, this idea that when if you don't know Christ or reject him, when you die and you're not a Christian, you're not thrown into a literal, eternal, physical place of isolation and darkness and torment of fire that lasts forever and ever and ever and ever with a conscious existence. That is not real. What happens if you're not a believer when you die is you just simply go into non-existence. So you don't have the joys and the privileges of living with God in heaven, in glory, in perfection for all eternity. So you're deprived of that blessing. So in essence, that is hell. But it's not a literal hell, not a literal conscious existence. So hell simply is annihilationism. Well, that was quite the scandal because that is not the position of the Roman Catholic Church. And for 2,000 years, the position of the Roman Catholic Church is that hell is just like it is described in the Bible. It is real. It is conscious. It is forever. It is torment. It is deserved. It is by God. It is full as a result of full, conscious, deliberate rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So the Catholic Church, for the most part has a biblical view of hell, despite purgatory, they have a biblical view of hell. And that's been the position of the church for 2,000 years. So it stirred up quite a controversy, and the people are still talking about it. But what all I wanted to point out was, as we read this story, is we see that Jesus rose again for a reason. He rose because he said he would rise. And it was on the heels of his death. He died for a reason. He died purposefully, willingly. He came here to die. That's why he was born. And he came to die to pay the punishment for sinners and absorb the wrath of his father in their stead as their substitute. And that Jesus would be the, quote, savior of the world, as John 4 says. He's the savior of the world, of those who believe in the world, regardless of your gender or your ethnicity or where you're born or your social status. If you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he is your savior if you're born again. He saved you. And the New Testament, and actually the whole Bible is clear of what Jesus intended to save us from by virtue of his perfect life, his perfect atoning death on the cross, his amazing supernatural resurrection from the dead, his ascension on high, and his continual role as high priest, and his coming again in the future, which indeed is going to happen. What did he do all this for? Well, he came to rescue us. He came to save us. And the Bible is very clear. He came to save us from our sin, our personal sins. Absolutely. He came to redeem us and buy us out of slavery from our sin. He came to reconcile us to the Father. All this is, is what, he, what he did as a Savior. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus came into the world as Savior to save us from the devil, from Satan, and death itself. And the Bible is also clear that Jesus came as Savior to save us from hell. Literal hell as described in the Bible. One of my best friends who's a pastor and now probably in his late 30s has a vivid memory of when he got saved. When did you get saved? I was five years old. I was born in a Christian home. I went to VBS. The message that day was on the reality of God's judgment and his hatred for sin, that he was a holy God, and that anybody that rejected his message as given through the gospel of Jesus Christ if they died in unbelief as an unbeliever, then they would be consigned to hell forever. Literal, conscious, physical torment. And as a five-year-old, I was scared to death. And I cried out to Jesus, Jesus, save me from hell. And he, he says he was born again. Boom. Instantaneously. His whole life changed. There was a peace over his, his soul. His eyes were open to spiritual realities. And he says he hasn't wavered a day since he was five years old. It's like you got saved yesterday. So you're telling me the reason you got saved is because you were afraid of hell. That's right. And the reality of it. That's a powerful testimony because it's biblical. I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus saved me from hell. Thank God he did. Let's go ahead and look at Matthew 28 at the blessed Savior and his work and who he is. Starting at verse 1, we'll go 1 through 7. And here in this little vignette here, verses 1 through 7, we see that Jesus is the living Savior. He is alive. 
He is alive. Just three days before on Friday, actually the Passover, when lambs would be slaughtered, Jesus the lamb was slaughtered. That was not a coincidence. That was purposeful. That was intended. Isn't that amazing? Of all the days that... I mean, the Pharisees have been trying to kill Jesus for since he first opened his mouth publicly for three and a half years, and they're trying to kill him all the time, trying to stone him to death here and chase him out of the temple here, and and they could never pull it off. And the problem was none of those days they tried to kill him was the day of the Passover. He needed to be slaughtered as the Lamb of God on the Passover feast day. And that's exactly what happened. So he died willingly as a substitute on Passover, which was a Friday. He was in the grave most of Friday, then all the way the Jews count days, by the way, all day Saturday and much of Sunday, according to a Jewish account of time. So Jesus was in the grave for three days, just as he said. Now, uh, let's look at verses 1 through 7. Now, after the Sabbath, after Saturday, when Saturday was over, that's their holy day, the seventh day of the week, when they weren't supposed to work, they were supposed to stop, pause, rest, think about God, think about the law. Now, after the Sabbath, so now it's early Sunday morning, as it began to dawn, other uh, gospels say, while it was early, another gospel says, while it was still dark, so it tells you what kind of time of the day it is. Sabbath, I mean, it's like the, the women here, it's going to describe who come to the tomb. These are devout Jewish women. They love Jesus. They love Yahweh. They love the law of God. They love the Old Testament. They take it seriously. They obey it with sincerity to the last detail. And when Passover began, they knew we must honor God. We need to stop our work no matter what we're doing, whether it's even doing the most important work in the world. And that was anointing the body of Jesus, or at least preparing the ointment to anoint his body. So they put it down. They put that work down for at least 10 hours until the legitimate time. It's kind of like they're looking at their watches. Wait, they didn't have watches. They're looking at the sky, waiting for the sun to come. And there it is on the horizon. And at that very moment, as soon as they can, let's get back to our work. These wonderful women, this group of women. So after the Sabbath, it's an early Sunday morning when it's still dark, yet it's about to be light. It's officially the first day of the week. It began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, whoever that other Mary is, probably Mary, the cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or I mean uh, Salome. And the other Mary, there's at least three different Marys in the New Testament. Mary Magdalene. The other Gospels tell us that another woman was there, Joanna. Joanna was a woman who Jesus set free from demons in his ministry early on. Luke chapter 8 talks about how Jesus was going around town to town with the apostles and they're casting out demons and they're healing people. And Mary Magdalene was one of those that got healed of demons by Jesus. And ever since that happened, Mary Magdalene, she's just following Jesus wherever he goes in his shadow. I am going to follow my master and my savior. And she did faithfully and loyally and committed to the end, even here. But along with uh, Mary Magdalene, there was also uh, Joanna, who was also with her. And she also had demons in her and was cast out. So uh, Mary Magdalene and Joanna had something incredible in common, that they were both demon demonized, that Jesus set free. And they were a part of this contingent of women that just continued to follow and minister to Jesus throughout his ministry. Actually, when everybody else pretty much abandoned him. These faithful, wonderful women. And then also there was uh, another woman named Salome. The interesting thing about Joanna, who was also with Mary Magdalene and Mary and Salome, um, Joanna was married to a man named Chusa, and Chusa actually worked for Herod, wicked Herod. Isn't that amazing? So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. The reason uh, Matthew just mentions Mary Magdalene, she was kind of the leader. She was the spokesperson. She did some unique things here. As a matter of fact, Mary's probably the only one. Mary Magdalene in this group of women that came that day to see Jesus at the resurrection. Mary's probably the only one that went to the tomb, panicked, ran back to the apostles, came back a second time. The other woman that she was with, well, she left them in the dust. They probably only went there one time. If you put all four gospel accounts together. And so, and she also had a unique experience and an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on that day, the risen Savior. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. By the way, Mary Magdalene, uh, a beautiful thing about reading Matthew 28, the account 
in the Bible regarding the resurrection story is that we can dispel all the wrong tradition, wrong views, heretical views, damning views, unbiblical views about Jesus, the resurrection, and all that goes with it. And and one of those is this idea that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She wasn't. doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. She wasn't married to Jesus, as some would have us believe. She's just a faithful saint, saved by grace. So Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, they, and these other women came to look at the grave with purpose. Verse 2, and behold, and behold, says Matthew, a severe earthquake had occurred at, around the, at the time, early on Sunday morning, at the time of the resurrection. Matthew has already just referred to a severe earthquake that happened when Jesus Christ was on the cross. So this was not a natural phenomenon. This was God intervening in world history to make a statement. Actually, there's a reason that a, a massive earthquake happened because an angel from heaven came down and basically created the earthquake. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord, good angel, descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and then sat upon it. So there's a huge massive stone in front of this tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The, the stone probably taller than me. You can see these kind of stones in Israel even today. They weigh thousands and thousands of pounds. Uh, not one man can, can move these things. Usually it takes a whole group of men and, and mechanics to even get these things to move. But this angel of God, all-powerful, just whoo, moved the stone away, flopped it on the ground. Then he ended up sitting right upon it. What a glorious scene, the power of God. And that's why the earthquake happened. Verse 3, and the, the appearance of the angel was like lightning. So no doubt he was in white. He was from heaven. He was glistening with the purity of Almighty God. Who knows if the whiteness is just reflecting some of the aftermath of the glory that he had being immediately in the presence of Almighty God up in heaven. But it was noticeable. He was definitely different. Looked like a man, looked like a human personage, looked like a male individual, but at the same time distinct and totally set apart. This is not just an earthly creature. This was actually a frightening scene. Anytime a human being sees an angel on earth in the Bible, usually... They are scared to death, fall over like dead, knees are knocking with this heavenly encounter. And that's what happens here, actually. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Verse 4, the guards shook for fear of him. So these are Roman guards that the Pharisees, the Jewish Pharisees, the Jewish Sanhedrin borrowed from Pilate. Armed guards, no doubt. Swords, trained to kill. Strong, powerful, armed men. Probably a contingent of 12 Roman soldiers is the common thinking and understanding according to tradition and the wording in the four Gospels. 12 Roman soldiers armed to guard and protect a dead man's tomb. What were they afraid of? Why were they so panicked? Well, that's what the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin did. They hired this group of Roman soldiers. They're guarding the tomb and this angel comes down. And it says the guards shook. The word for shook there is earthquake. It's the same word for earthquake that we just read about. So there's this massive earthquake that God creates when the angel comes. And then there's a personal earthquake that all of these 12 Roman guards have, and they fall over like dead. They're not dead, but they fall over unconscious, stiff as a board, and they look like they're dead. Apparently, they saw them before they fell over because it says the guards shook for fear of him. And they became like dead men. Verse 5, we're going to see these guards again in the story. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, so the women get to the tomb. They've got their spices. Uh, from the other Gospels, we learn that they are worried about, wow, we want to anoint Jesus' body. It's day 3. By day 4, his body's going to be rotting. So there's a sense of urgency. We need to take care of our, sa- our, our master's body. Who's going to roll away the stone? And as soon as they get from uh, eye distance, they see that the stone has been rolled away. The work has been done for them by the grace of God. An angel rolled that stone away. The, by the way, the angel rolled away the stone not to let Jesus out of the tomb. When the angel comes down and removes the stone, Jesus is already gone. He's not in the tomb. How do you get out of there? Because he now has a glorified supernatural resurrection, yet physical body of flesh and bones, but it is a spiritual supernatural body. And Jesus can come and go just like that. As a matter of fact, he's wrapped in linen like a mummy when he was buried with a separate head cloth wrapped around his head. And Lazarus had to be unwrapped. Jesus just went poof, left those linens intact just as they were. They were still laying there 
the stone was in front of the tomb and Jesus left the, the tomb amazingly as he willed. He could come and go, appear and reappear in his supernatural resurrection body. And he's going to do that even in this story. So the stone was not removed to let Jesus out. It was to let the women in and Peter and John later to see that God had fulfilled his promise. And then so the women get to see the angel. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid because the angel knew that the women would be afraid because he was a supernatural being. Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus. How did they know that? Because God revealed that to these angels. They're messengers of God. They knew why these women were there. How comforting for these women to put them at ease. I know you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He's not here. For he has risen. Just as he said. Just as he told you. Another gospel tells us at this time. Oh, the memory kicked in. Oh, yes. And they remembered his promise. He did say that. He is risen, just as he said. Come see. The, so it's kind of interesting as you read the four Gospels together. It is a little difficult to figure out the exact chronology. But one of the Gospels would lead us to believe that the women see the tomb rolled away and they go immediately into the tomb. And once they get in the tomb, that's when they see the angel. And it's a big tomb. It can accommodate all these women, plus at least two angels and the area where Jesus' body was laying and you could walk around in this tomb. And so they enter the tomb. They see the angel. They almost panic. He comforts them. He gives them the good news. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And then the angel says, look and see where they laid his body. So this conversation could happen, be happening all inside that tomb. See the place where he's lying at the end of verse 6 and then verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples. Go quickly. I know this is amazing. I know this is shocking. I know it probably hasn't sunk in and you haven't absorbed it yet i know that you might be uh, panicked or in awe about my appearance as an angel by the way there were two angels there this one was just the spokesperson the other gospels make it clear that there's one angel on this side of jesus's body where it used to lay and there's another angel on this side of where jesus's body used to lay two angels two angels on either side like bookends of of the body of jesus christ which in terms of the imagery It's amazing because at the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies on top at the most sacred part in the temple that represented the very presence of God. The lid was a mercy seat and on the mercy seat over the presence of God were two angels on either side, two cherubim guarding the holiness in the presence of God. And here you've got these two angels guarding the holiness of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. And one of them is a spokesperson and he tells them, I know this is all just amazing and you're awe and there's fear and there's joy and probably can't think correctly. So that's why he has to be firm. Go quickly. Go. Go tell his disciples. Go tell the apostles, starting with the apostles. Go tell the apostles or the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you in advance. So here you go. Leave here. Go tell the apostles that Jesus is risen and also tell the apostles to go to Galilee to meet Jesus because Jesus had told the apostles, I'm going to be killed. And when I rise again from the dead, you need to meet me. We need to rendezvous in Galilee. Well, when did Jesus say that? And by the way, from the four gospels, it's clear that Jesus also told the women the same thing. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to rise from the dead and we are going to rendezvous in Galilee. You ladies, you need to go to Galilee. Jesus said that he made it clear. When did he say it to the apostles? He said it in Matthew 26 at the last supper. And after they had the supper together, just before they went to the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told them. I'm going to be I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be taken away. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And you are all going to scatter. They say, you're going to abandon me. Peter says, no, all will abandon you, Lord, but I will not abandon you. And then Jesus had to break the bad news to Peter. Yeah, you're going to abandon me and worse. That's the bad news. The good news is, but I'm going to rise again from the dead and you need to meet me in Galilee. Go to Galilee. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus died and was buried in Jerusalem. Jesus is right now in Jerusalem. The resurrection in the tomb happened in Jerusalem. The women are now in Jerusalem. And they're being told Jesus is risen. He is not here. Go meet him in Galilee. 
well, why did they go meet him in Galilee? Well, we're going to see that at the end of this story, and we'll, we'll pick that up again. Another interesting thing is the first person, apparently, or the first people to become aware that Jesus actually was risen from the dead was probably these wonderful, gracious women. These pathetic, I mean, their pasts were just uh, horrible in terms of their immorality, demon possession, who knows what else. They, but they were now forgiven uh, sinners walking with feet of clay, and yet they love Jesus. And God gives them this wonderful privilege of being the first to see that he is risen from the dead, fulfilling his promise, and inviting them to come join them in a very important meeting in Galilee. These blessed ladies, and for 2,000 years, people have speculated, theologians and philosophers, well, why did Jesus ask the women? Why did he reveal himself first to the women? Because he did reveal himself to these women before the apostles. Why did he do that? Well, the text doesn't tell us. I mean, maybe the reason is because they were the first ones there. Pretty simple. And if you read Luke chapter 8, and you're introduced to these women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and it says many more women. And then especially in the Gospel of Luke, there's these everywhere Jesus goes, there's these women. Jesus said, I have no home. Foxes have holes or dens. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus had no home. Many times he's sleeping out under the stars. Nevertheless, these women are always following Jesus wherever he goes to meet his needs, to maybe help him with food, just the basics of life. And they followed him and shadowed him wherever he went. They were committed to him. They loved Christ. And so this is no different. The earlier chapter, Matthew 27, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are preparing Jesus' body to bury in the tomb. And the women are at a distance where they can see all that's going on. Okay, ladies, there's Nicodemus. I don't know if I trust that guy or that Nicodemus guy. Weren't they fair? Yeah, well, anyway, what are they doing? And they're watching from a distance as they take Jesus' body and then they put it in the tomb and they saw all of that. Okay, now we know where his tomb is. Let's go ahead and prepare our spices. We need to anoint our master. So they're following him wherever he goes. So sure enough, the first opportunity they get, that's where they are. They're the first, that's why they're the first ones there. They are committed to serving every need that Jesus had. And as a result, God blesses and rewards that commitment and loyalty. It's true in the Christian life. The closer you are to Jesus, wherever he goes, you will be blessed as a result. You'll be involved in all the blessings. Wow, God did this and God did that. And you'll never believe what Jesus did here and what God did here. Well, how come you get to see all that? Well, because I'm just kind of following where he's at. Where's that? Being with God's people. Being with the body of Christ. Being with the church. That's where God operates today. Where is Jesus Christ today? Is he on earth? That's a good question. Is Jesus on earth today? The Catholic Church says he is in the vicar of Christ the Pope. Is Jesus on earth? I would propose that Jesus is on the earth. He's not in a building. He's in people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're a Christian, Christ lives in you through the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? So Christ is here. He is on earth. He's in every believer. Corporately together, Christ indwells his church. Christ is here today. Christ is in this church through the Spirit of God. It's amazing. I don't understand it. I believe it by faith. But he is also in heaven, physically, bodily, with the Father in glory. So that is the living Savior. Let's go on to number two. What else about Jesus do we learn from this resurrection account that he is the God man? 100% God, 100% humanity versus eight through 10. So the ladies are given their commission. Verse eight, they obeyed. They left the tomb quickly. Now, if you were to read the other gospels, particularly John, and just put them all together, it appears that before the ladies actually met the angel and the angel talked to them, Mary Magdalene split. So in the first encounter, she didn't get to meet the angel. She didn't hear what the angel said. That's why I think it's in John where she runs back. She just leaves her friends behind. Doesn't even tell them where they're going. Oh, there goes Mary again. And it says she went back and she told Peter and John that Jesus' body was missing, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, if she was there when the angel said, he's risen from the dead, go tell your, the disciples, she wouldn't have said that. Then Peter and John, whoosh, they run as fast as they can to the tomb. John was faster than Peter. He got there first. He paused outside the tomb. Peter goes in. He takes leadership. That's Peter. Then John, okay, well, Peter's not dead. I guess I'll go in. John was the smart one. Then apparently Mary followed behind. 
she was a little slower than uh, John and Peter. And then when she got there, she has a, a, just a beautiful encounter with the angels. They appear again to Mary. And this time they, they tell her, he's risen. And then she actually gets to see Jesus, which is awesome. But the women also get to see Jesus too. So that's verse 8. And so they, these ladies, possibly without Mary Magdalene, left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Not great fear, just fear. Why, why was there fear? Well, it hasn't absorbed yet. Wait, we came to see Jesus. His body isn't here. Has his body been stolen? Is this really happening? And then the fear from those angels. So there is fear, probably a healthy fear. Not only that, the great joy. What a tension and mixed emotions. That's, that's reality. That's life. Fear and great joy. They have great joy from the story that they've just heard. Wow. Angels from God and Jesus has risen just as he said. That is awesome. And they ran to report it to his disciples. They ran. Do you see these old ladies run across the city early on a Sunday morning? And behold, they're running. And behold, get this. Trace the beholds in this passage. Behold this. Behold that. That's just, you will never, this is awesome. This is a supernatural intervention. And that's what happened here in verse 9. And behold, behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. So they got fear. They got joy. And then, boom, they're stopped in their tracks. And it is the risen, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I wonder what he looked like. He left all of his linen clothes in the cave, but he had clothes on. Where did he get those clothes? What was he wearing? Heavenly garments, probably. The promise of Revelation 6. Real garments, but supernatural garments, whatever that means. In glory, glistening with white, the heavenly radiance, the risen Christ. Yet he looks like a man, he looks like Jesus, yet he looks different than Jesus. And behold, Jesus met the ladies and he greeted them. And it, the, the word greeted them, that's just kind of a, hello, greetings, ladies. Just kind of normal. Greeting, greetings, ladies. And they came up, get this, and they took hold of his feet. Which The only way they could do that, Jesus is standing up, greeting, ladies. They took hold of his feet. They came up and they just dropped to the ground. Clung to his feet. Drop to the ground, proskuneo, to get your face on the ground. That is worship down with your face to the ground in obedience to an almighty God. It's one of the most graphic words for worship. So they grabbed Jesus' feet and it says they worshiped him. Now, remember, these ladies were Jews. They were educated in the synagogues or at least in their own homes in the Old Testament scriptures. The revelation of God was true that Yahweh, there was one God. He was not a man. He didn't have a physical body. He was a spirit. He was all glorious. He was invisible. He was infinite. And the one thing you don't do in light of the Ten Commandments is worship a created thing or worship that which is physical. You don't worship a man. You don't worship a woman, no human being. You don't worship idols, nothing physical. So if a Jew were to give worship to a fellow human being, that was worthy. That was blasphemy. That was worthy of the death penalty. And that's why probably for three and a half years, you don't see the apostles and these ladies in the gospels every time they see Jesus bowing down, grabbing his feet and worshiping him for a couple of reasons. And one is, in their mind, you don't worship a man. They knew Jesus was rabbi, master, savior. We don't know the fullness of... They, they called him Lord, but post-resurrection, in his glory, they understand now the fullness of his person. He is the God-man, the Savior of the world, one with the Father, worthy of worship. And that's what they do. This is appropriate. And the Christian faith, who do we worship? Well, do we worship God the Father? Yes. Do we worship Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Do we worship the Holy Spirit? Yes. We worship Jesus through the Spirit for the glory of the Father. Jesus is to be worshipped. He is to be prayed to. He is sovereign. He is almighty God. Jesus here was 100% God and 100% man. Jesus took on a human body. Prior to being born of Mary, Jesus didn't have never had a physical body, which is amazing. Existed in the eternity past with the Father and the Spirit as a spirit. Took on a human body. It was a normal human body. Died in that human body and then was resurrected in a supernatural physical body that had similarities to his old physical body, but now is new and perfected in heavenly, will be eternal. 
and is without flaw and totally sinless. And today, somehow, amazingly, Jesus is still omnipresent, yet in a body. How can that be? Well, we'll find out when we get to heaven. And this is the Jesus that they see. They hold his feet and they worship him. That's what we have the privilege of doing today, even though he's not here. Well, no, I said Jesus was here, right? He's here through the presence of the Spirit, but he's literally in heaven. And we have that wonderful privilege today, if you're a Christian, to worship Jesus. To worship the same Jesus, risen from the dead. Verse 10, and then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. I mean, that's just shepherdly care. He's sensitive to how they feel. Don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to, to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So there it is again. We got this rendezvous point in Galilee. I told them specifically, we need to meet in Galilee. Now, over the course of 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended, Jesus appeared and dis, uh, reappeared and disappeared a lot of different places. He made many appearances over the course of 40 days. But this meeting was a specific one. Go to Galilee. That was the great rendezvous before he went back into heaven, Galilee. We know that Jesus appears to the apostles in Jerusalem. He appears again eight days later after this incident, probably in Jerusalem. First Corinthians 15 says he made other appearances. He appeared to James, his half-brother, who used to doubt him. So Jesus is appearing and disappearing all over the place. But this meeting is different. It is significant. Make sure you go to that meeting in Galilee. What is that meaning? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a hint, as well as a couple of other passages. But after the 40 days, probably towards the end of the 40 days, Jesus was going to meet with his disciples, including the 11 apostles and his disciples, his followers. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were 500 people at this meeting in Galilee. And Jesus greeted them there. So in Galilee, and by the way, it was on a mountain. In Galilee, 500 people at the end of his 40 days. That's where, get this, he gave, if I were to ask you, where did Jesus give the Great Commission? Many would probably say in Jerusalem. No. Jesus gave the Great Commission in Galilee on this mountain. It's amazing. Why did Jesus do that? Why was it so important? Well, Jesus was a Galilean. He grew up in Galilee. It's where his family was. Jesus began his ministry, get this, in Galilee. Jesus ends his ministry technically in Galilee with the Great Commission, even though he ascends after that. But the Great Commission given in Galilee, 500 saints there. One of the reasons maybe why he met in Galilee was because there's 500 disciples there. When the church starts in Jerusalem, there's only 120. So no doubt there were disciples in Galilee who are native to Galilee. Also, this is interesting. Jesus had 12 hand-picked apostles. Every single one of the apostles was from Galilee, native to Galilee, except for one, Judas. He wasn't from Galilee. So it's very important. We usually just pass over that phrase. Take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. But... We learn there they worshipped him because he was worthy of worship. He is the God-man. So Jesus is the living Savior. Jesus is the God-man. Number three, 11 through 15. Now, while they were on their way, the ladies are running back to tell the apostles they just saw the risen Jesus Christ. Some of the guard, the Roman guard, some of the 12 men came into the city. So they got knocked over just about dead by an angel from heaven. They were passed out who knows for how long. Then some of them, which maybe is a majority of them, got up. And realized what happened. When they came to their senses, it's like, whoa, did you see that? What was that? That looked like a human being, but he looked like he was as bright as the sun. And we all passed out. Did you pass out? Yeah, I passed it. What happened there? Man, my head is reeling. And wait, what? who moved that stone? Did you move that stone? You didn't move that stone? Well, who moved the stone? What's it? Oh, the, the body is gone. That was our job. Our life is at stake. Full panic. You're a Roman soldier. You have one job. Guard the body. Make sure it doesn't get taken. Make sure it doesn't get stolen. Make sure it doesn't disappear. If you do, it's your life. So when the Romans wake up, the Romans they come to their senses. They realize what happened. They are in a, a wholesale panic. That's the context. By the way, these guards, they are real. 
they're historical. This is true. Don't let anybody say otherwise, even if it's a significant, influential, evangelical Bible teacher. I'm sorry I have to say that. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priests and all that happened. So here are these guards, maybe who knows how many of the 12 Roman soldiers, and they go into town, and they're thinking, man, what are we going to do? So they just, well, let's just tell them what happened. Hey, let's start with the truth. That's what they do. So they go to the chief priests. Who was that? The chief priests were responsible for arresting Jesus, paying off Judas, subjecting Jesus to six kangaroo false trials under Pilate petitioning the mob to scream for the blood of Jesus, crucify him. This is who the chief priests were. The most influential leaders in Jerusalem. The main influential voices in the Sanhedrin of its 71 members. These are the chief priests. The chief priests, they're responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. They have blood on their hand. That's who the chief priests are. These, some of these chief priests were at the foot of the cross mocking Christ for six hours while he died. Mocking him while he died for sinners. Amazingly, do you know that some of the priests came to know Christ in the book of Acts? Isn't that awesome? Some of the priests, some of the Sanhedrin, some of the same ones who plotted Jesus' death and mocked him from the cross in public got saved. That is the grace and the mercy of God. That's a fulfillment of Jesus' prayer and his plea from the cross. Jesus said seven statements from the cross, and one of the first ones was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That includes the chief priests who put him to death. Amazing. So the Roman soldiers go to the authorities, those who hired them from Pilate, fearing their lives, and reported all that happened. They just gave eyewitness testimony. All that happened, not some of what happened, all that happened, including an angel from heaven. Verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders, that means they convened the Sanhedrin. This is like the Supreme Court of Israel, and they consulted together. Okay, so the Roman soldiers reported all that happened. Well, we were there, we were guarding, it was early morning, and all 12 of us, all of a sudden, there was a massive earthquake. It scared us almost to death. And then some thing came out of heaven as bright as the sun and knocked us over. And then it was like being dead. And then we woke up and the stone was removed and the body was gone. And we don't know what happened. We don't know what to do. So they told the whole story. And the chief priest, hearing eyewitness testimony, all in unison, all in sync, validating that it was true from the testimony of the Roman soldiers, you would think that would sway the chief priests, woo their heart, bring them unto belief, tangible, empirical evidence from eyewitness testimonies, fresh in their memories, just happened. That'll win them over. No, it won't. All it does is, for the most part, harden their hearts all the more. They didn't question, oh, really? Wow, serious? Do you think, really? He really did come back from the dead. Wow. Maybe he is who, what he said he was, the Messiah. No. Jesus even said in one of the parables, regarding that dead unbeliever that went to hell where it was burning, said, can I go back to earth and warn all of my siblings? Because I got it wrong. And then Jesus said, you know what? Some people, even if they see a man risen from the dead, they still not will believe. They will not believe. So there are just some people, you can amass as much data and evidence and archaeology and even Someone risen from the dead, and that's not going to change. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That didn't convince most of them. They said, oh, you just do that with the power of Satan. That's, that's the hardness of hearts. That is the sinfulness of sins. That just shows us there's only one way people get saved. It is by the sheer sovereign grace of God. Our responsibility is, pre- is proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and praying for their salvation. Praying that God would strip away satanic blindness, that he would strip away blindness from sin and hardness of heart, and that in his mercy, as we plead with God, that he would graciously woo them, soften them, and cause them to be born again, because that's the only way it can happen. And no one is beyond saving from God's point of view, by the way. You shouldn't be discouraged by that. God is a gracious God. God is not willing that any should perish. The hardest of hearts have been softened and melted wooed and saved and transformed by the grace of, of Almighty God. I think of the one of the hardest hearts in the Old Testament is Nebuchadnezzar. Vicious. 
Absolutely vicious, wicked, evil, immoral, prideful. And God humbled him. If you read Daniel chapter 4 very carefully, and the words that come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth and the prayer that he prays, you would have to conclude, wow, God saved Nebuchadnezzar. That is amazing. Well, that's how God is. Nevertheless, right now, these chief priests, they are hardened. They reject all truth. And when they had assembled the Sanhedrin together with the elders, consulted, then they gave a large sum of money, literally silver, and a lot of it to the soldiers. This is the same filthy lucre. They gave Judas 30 pieces of silver to do his dirty deed. And now they just pile it on with these Roman soldiers. Here's some hush money. Not only was it hush money, change to the truth. Change your story. Don't say what you really said. You say what we tell you to say. And they bought into it, sadly. Verse 13, and they said, you are to say this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, Pilate, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. You take this money, you do what we tell you to do. We won't let Pilate execute you, which he has the authority to do. This is blackmail, verse 15. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. So the Jesus Christ was crucified and risen in about 30 A.D. Matthew was writing at least 20 years later. This story was still alive and well, and well among the Jews who were unbelieving in Jerusalem and beyond. And guess what? This lie rings true still today and being propagated and perpetuated by those who hate Christ. And they're out there. It was, it was sad. It was this week. Where was I? At the library? Waiting to go into the library. And there's a couple people like 50 yards away. For whatever reason, I could kind of hear their conversation reverberating down, I guess, the brick wall the way to my ears. One of them said, oh, man, I, I, that is so awesome that Easter this year is on April 1st. Isn't that appropriate? April Fool's Day. Fool you, Christians. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So uh, my blood was boiling. I thought, well, I can't say anything because then they'd know I was eavesdropping, and that's not legit. Uh, <laughs> but I was also sad. I just thought, oh, how sad. Wow. They're missing out on the most important reality in history. No, that's not the significance of April Fool's Day. R.C. Sproul used to say that April Fool's was the only national holiday for atheists. Uh, think about it. But anyway. So, sadly, they, they do this, verse 15. And I put there, Jesus is the feared judge. Jesus is the feared Because when I read this, that you know, why are they doing this? These Sadducees, these Jewish leaders, these masters of the Old Testament who teach and memorize and write and preserve the Old Testament, all these prophecies about the coming Messiah, including the fact he will be a, a savior who must die, starting in Genesis 3.15, then Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. In graphic detail, the savior must die and rise again from the dead. They know that. They knew where he was going to be born. They told Herod, well, the book of Micah. They took the Bible literally. They have full knowledge. And accountability comes with full knowledge. That is frightening. But why would they do that? Why are they operating this way? Why are they murderers? Why are they liars? Why are they so hardened in their sin? Well, much of it is they're operating out of fear. They have no fear of God. They've hardened their hearts towards God. And also they fear God ultimately is judged. They really do. Every unbeliever does. They can deny the reality of the afterlife, the reality of hell, the reality of God. But deep in their heart, because of their conscience, made in the image of God, natural revelation, special revelation, the testimony of God, Jesus risen from the dead. Every person knows that when they die, they have to face the judge of the earth. And they are operating out of utter fear. And that's what feeds their unbelief. There's a healthy fear and then a, a damnable 
unbelieving fear. And that's what's motivating them here. So Jesus is the living Savior, the God-man, the feared judge. And then 16 through 18, he is the sovereign king. Sovereign king. Verse 16, but transition. Unlike these dastardly, unbelieving Jewish leadership and compromised Gentile Roman soldiers, on the contrary, the 11 disciples, the faithful ones, even though they scattered, even though Peter denied knowing Christ, even though they were kind of cowards, even though they were weak in faith, lapsed in faith, hiding in fear, they loved Jesus. They knew Jesus. God was gracious. He didn't reprimand them and rebuke them for a time of scattering. It's gracious to him. Verse 16 through 18. But the 11 disciples, that would be the 11 apostles minus Judas who committed suicide. They proceeded to Galilee. So this could very well be at the end of the 40 days. They proceeded to Galilee. Just just Jesus said, meet you at the mountain. Proceeded to Galilee to the mountain. So there's a mountain in Galilee. There's a few mountains in Galilee. I've, I've been on some mountains in Galilee and also in Jerusalem. Many significant mountains. So this is probably the mountain of great, uh, the Great Commission mountain. Now, when you go on a mountain in Jerusalem, I mean in uh, Israel, you, you get a good perspective. You can see just about everything, just a panoramic view of what's around. You can see Damascus, Syria, the countries around you. Look close enough on a good day with a lack of clouds and hazy weather. You got, whoa, there's the Mediterranean Sea, and depending upon what mountain you're on. But basically, you can see the kingdoms of the world in panoramic view. And no doubt, it could have been a beautiful day that Jesus commissioned for this time to meet. So you got 500 people gathering on this mountain. So it's a significant mountain. 500 of his followers in Galilee, just before his ascension into heaven, he gives the Great Commission because that's what this is. So they all gather. There's Jesus probably at the very top of this mountain, this significant mountain. And when they all got there, verse 17 says, when they saw him, there he was in his glory, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It could be that some of these Galileans had, had not seen him yet. It's been 40 days. They heard rumors. Wait, Jesus, the blessed Savior, the rabbi, he got killed, he got murdered, he got crucified. Why? He didn't do anything wrong. And then maybe they heard the good news. But, you know, there's rumor that he's, he's alive. He's appearing to people. He's even appeared to the apostles. And now you're invited. Come see. Come see our blessed Savior up on the mountain in Galilee where he where told us to meet. And the women are there, too, because they were invited. Oh, what great anticipation. So when they saw him at the top of the mountain, they worshipped him. Proskuneo got down on their face and worshipped him as almighty God. This was a new day, a new era. The resurrected Christ in glory, unlike prior to the cross where he looked just like a man. He looked normal. He was indistinguishable from the average person, says the book of Isaiah. Now he is God, man in glory demanded that one bow the knee to him and worship him, for that is what he is due. And that's exactly what they do. It could be that they all did a face plant, 500 people, boom, all at once, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, and he welcomed that worship. He didn't rebuke him for it. He welcomed it. He deserved it. He is the God of glory. He is the creator. He's the judge. He's the savior. He is to be worshiped. He's more than a man. And then the interesting phrase at the end of verse 17, but some were doubtful, some doubted. But that doubt was overcome rather quickly with the coming of the Holy Spirit that would just be coming days from this event. And then in verse 18, Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, and this is probably maybe where some of that doubt began to dispel as he, he spoke loudly, shouted out and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not only am I Jesus, your friend, your brother, your savior, rabbi, master, teacher. I am Lord. I am the sovereign one. The all sovereign one, the omnipotent one, equal with Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's what he was declaring. All authority has been granted to me. Here he is on a mountain. He's declaring he has all authority and then he's going to give the great commission. Go into all the world, all the kingdoms of the world and declare that I am king. And I have all authority. Contrast that with Matthew chapter 4. Same book. When Jesus began his ministry before he did, when he was tempted by the devil in the desert. One of those temptations, Jesus was taken by Satan where? It says on a high mountain. I think it was a real mountain. Satan had Jesus stand on that mountain. 
And Satan made the promise and basically said, bow down to me and then I will grant you all the authority that I have. I have all the authority of the kingdoms of the world and it can be yours. That's what Satan told Jesus. That was a lie. That was a false temptation of God himself. Jesus knew it, rejected that. He knew Jesus, uh, that Satan had no authority. And here Jesus declares the true source of authority. It was God the Father in heaven has delegated all that authority over the kingdoms of this world, contrary to the lie of Satan. And I am empowering you in my name to go conquer the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's phenomenal. Dispelling much of this doubt and fear because it's supernatural revelation is what gives faith and no doubt their hearts were filled with faith by jesus's glorious words that he is the sovereign king and then finally look at verses 19 and 20 here's the content of his message after he speaks by what authority he's been given by the father and here's here's the message this is the great commission we know it verse 19 go therefore literally while going while going while you're on your way christian get out of your holy huddle Yeah, go to church. Yeah, congregate. Yeah, have fellowship. Yeah, be fed. Yeah, be taught. Yeah, be edified. And then go out, scatter, fill the world, infiltrate. Go to the unbelievers. Don't say, here, come to me. Come to my church so you can hear the gospel. That's sissy evangelism. No, you go out into the world. That's hard. While going, the implication is you will be going. You will be speaking. You will be an ambassador. You will be an an apostle. That's what that is. You represent Jesus wherever you go. And here's your main verb. Make disciples. Doesn't say how to do it. He doesn't tell the process. He doesn't give the methods. It's the command. Make disciples. It's pretty simple. A disciple is a follower, a learner. Make disciples. Make followers of Jesus Christ. And you do it with the gospel. Of all the nations. There it is. All the nations. God loves his creation. He loves all people. Every human being. Made in the image of God. All came from Adam and Eve. And then when they do get saved, you baptize them after they believe. Baptize means dunk, dunk in water, just as Jesus got baptized. And just like John the, Apostle, uh, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan, dunking people with full knowledge of what they believe, baptizing them in the name, singular in the name, the name. God has one name. Yahweh has one name, and specifically Yahweh's one name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three different names in the name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal God. Yet distinct persons, you baptize in the name of the triune God as revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then once they get saved and you baptize them and you gather them into the church, God's community, then forever you are teaching them to observe. Teaching them, that's ongoing, as long as they are alive or until Jesus comes again. We are all learning. That is the discipleship process. None of us has arrived. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Jesus is the authority. Here it is. All that Jesus commanded is preserved in the New Testament for us. Praise be to God. That's the grace of God. There's no question about what God thinks, what Jesus wants, what we need to be taught and master. It's all in the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, here's a great promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. Jesus is still. Nevertheless, he's confined somehow in a glorious resurrection body that's physical. Nevertheless, I am with you. That's omnipresence. Even to the end of the age. That's eternality. He is almighty God. And here Jesus is the head of the church. This was the beginning of the church. I close with this, that glorious resurrection. So not only is today resurrection Sunday. I don't know if you've ever been told this or thought this, but today is actually new covenant day. Did you know that technically the new covenant began the day Jesus rose from the dead? So next year, in the morning, when you greet people at church, see if you can remember, happy resurrection and new covenant day. See if people remember, and then there's that the blessed promise of all that comes with the new covenant. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for these wonderful Blessed truths that we call the gospel as Jesus fulfilled his mission of why he came to this earth to seek and to save sinners that were lost for our good and for his glory. Father, we thank you for our time together and we do. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday. It's historical reality, the preservation of it in the scripture and the ability to live it on a daily basis by being born again 
through that message and also the Holy Spirit who quickens us on the inside. We thank you for uh, the privilege to meet with the saints today and celebrate together. And indeed, it is a celebration. And God, I pray for those who who are confused about their salvation. They're not sure if they know you personally. And also those who don't know you and they're adamant about it, that you just continue to work on their hearts with your truth, with your Holy Spirit, with the power of prayer from the saints. Wooing so graciously because you love sinners. We thank you for that wonderful promise. We just pray that you go before us now as we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.